We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Napa know-how. Now at Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers, get a $20 prepaid Visa gift card when you buy oil, air, and cabin air filters. Because let's be honest, you probably don't remember the last time you changed them. So buy all three filters at your local Napa and get 20 bucks back. Do it yourself or have it done for you. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers. Limit two prepaid cards per household while supplies last. Offer ends 10 31 the Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp. Oh, now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Guys, that was embarrassing. Um, didn't deserve to win the ball game. Thought Ruffin and his team came in here and, and took it to us. We've got a long ways to go. Welcome to the show, episode three, after a most interesting weekend of football in the swamp. Alan, let's talk about the game. Let's just jump right in and talk about the game because really it needs to be discussed. Let's do it. I'm I'm excited to be back here on the pod. You were live at the stadium. Tell me what you thought. How did you feel? Were you embarrassed as well, James? <laughs> I I am currently embarrassed, was embarrassed. I thought, however, on the non-embarrassing side, the crowd energy was really good two weeks in a row. There's a palpable excitement in the stadium. But aside from that, um, things generally went the wrong way. And I, I don't I don't feel like it's a step back, per se. Uh, I do feel like, however, we, we did some things that were more or less self-imposed. And I actually assign a lot of the blame to Coach Mack. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say that because in the first quarter we jump we go down seven nothing right away on a nice play um, over Tabor just to, just a or over sorry not over Tabor over um, Wilson which is just a good pass a good score they go up take momentum we respond Will Greer I thought played actually really well in the first quarter he couldn't do anything on the first drive wasn't his fault 
And then he responds with a touchdown and another touchdown, one that gets called back on a Jake McGee pass interference call. But um, I had felt like we were about to sort of run him out of the stadium. We kind of get the turnover on the 21-yard line, and in comes Treon Harris, and we don't do anything, we miss a field goal, and then the game begins this weird downward spiral into just one of the weirder games I've ever seen with regards to tons of penalties and crazy interceptions and... Just weird stuff that happened. But I'm going to, and we're going to talk about this as we get into the show here, but I'm going to assign a lot of it to the, the switching of the quarterbacks. I think it really backfired in game two. I felt like it felt like an NFL preseason game with this on schedule quarterbacks come in. We had backup running backs in, walk on running backs in. We were playing everyone as though ECU didn't matter. And I think it almost cost us the game. Well, the key word for me in the game and describing it as sloppy. All of the things that we praised the team for last week, their execution, how everyone seemed to know what they were doing, uh, the lack of penalties. And what I was looking for, remember last week I said, is I wanted to see some consistency. And that went out the window. I think the if you could describe the game one more, to be inconsistent. And I, I don't really know what happened overall. I think, you know, McElwain talked about it in his press conference today. He said 30 players showed up on Monday last Monday with their without their ankles taped, meaning not ready to go. And maybe just this team still has a lot of bad habits and a lot of things that's you know doesn't get weeded out in one offseason. And so you're right. I think the coaching staff still has a long way to go. And I do think this two QB system, I agree, really hamstrung us. Uh, it doesn't allow for them to get in a groove and – yeah, you saw the results of that is the team just kind of, it just went in the mush. Like there wasn't much happening uh, in the positive. There's no flow to it. Really kind of strange game overall, like you said. And that's and I think that's the key is there wasn't a flow. There was I thought there was actually a lot of flow. I remember sitting at the end of the first quarter thinking, uh, we're about to like I said, we're about to run him out of here. Like the momentum was shifting. You know, they there's they have a third string quarterback playing. The defense had really adjusted to their their quick slant routes at that point in time in the game, and Will Greer was was dropping dimes. I mean, the guy was in his own, and they take him out because it's on schedule. It's time to take him out, and you bring in Treon, and and Treon comes in, and and it, no fault of his own. I actually thought ECU was really well prepared for his play package. They ran basically the same exact pass plays he ran in week one. Now, whether or not that was wise, I don't know, but we ran the same bootleg rollout, the same exact three level play where you've got both tight ends, one short, one middle, one deep. They were all over it. They were all over his entire package. And ultimately, we kicked some field goals there. We probably still separate ourselves. So certainly Harding has a lot of the blame there too. But I just felt like the momentum really got him. And it wasn't a preseason game. And as the game wore on, you started to feel like the game was getting a little bit out of control and that they could wind up upsetting us. And yet we continued to plug away with sort of the same preseason mentality. And it uh, ultimately, at the end, we got, let's face it, we got pretty lucky. The yes. quarterback just dropped the ball. No one touched him. It goes straight back out of his hands, and we wind up winning Almost the game because of that. Weirdly, very similar to the bowl game where we're up, it's close, they come down to the end, they're going to win, maybe, and Vern intercepts it. This time, something weirder happened at the end, which we'll talk about in a minute. But, yeah, I, I credit ECU for staying in the game when it looked like they might get blown out. They kept fighting and plugging, and I was kind of shocked at how well they executed some of their pass plays. Their one receiver lit us up. Uh, Isaiah Jones, I believe his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though they made them really one-dimensional, they still killed us with that. And, you know, 
speaking about Greer and Treon, I mean, at the moment they took Greer out, he had basically thrown almost back-to-back picks on plays. So I think they were feeling if this is going to be a moment where we need to like move on from him and go back to our um, QB rotation, this is now is the time. I wonder what would have happened if he leads another touchdown. Do we never see Treon in the game? What do you think about that? I, I think they were on schedule for second quarter, fourth quarter. And the reason I think that is the game was 10-7. to 7. ECU had immediately established themselves in your own home stadium. Will Greer has just led your team down on two touchdown drives. Again, one negated by a penalty right down the field. He's hot as can be, and you took him out. It's 10-7. to 7. ECU is a real football team. Eight of the, eight of the, line, uh, eight of the nine years you know, that, that have gone by here, they've been in a bowl game. Uh, Ruffin McNeil's a really good coach. This is not a, this is not a team you mess around with. This is a power team in a mid-major conference that's coming into your stadium and announcing themselves. And our response is to say, let's put the quarterback in who hasn't done anything yet, run a package of plays that you've already seen before in week one, take all of the momentum, I mean all of the momentum out of the game, just gone. Now I know that McElwain talked a lot in his press conference about how, hey, we put whoever we want in the game because they're supposed to do their job. And I think that works better at receiver and running back than it does a quarterback. And I think that's what happened. Both of these guys struggled. Like you said, Greer comes out after basically an hour and 20 minutes of real time from end of the first quarter to the start of the third quarter. Hasn't thrown a ball. Hasn't played. I mean, that's, that's difficult. If you've played sports, you know that an hour and 20 minutes is an eternity. You come back into a game now that has a different mentality. Of course, he struggles. He really struggled there at the end of three or two of his worst passes as a Gator. But I, I think he was coming out of the game no matter what. I really do. I feel like McElwain is proving he's very systematic. He was going to take him out of the game because, I mean, Trion came in and we pretty much just ran the ball and got the winning score. But it it was it was confusing. I had thought that McElwain had seen enough in the first quarter of Greer to say, you know what, I'm not sure what I told the players themselves. But if it were me, Greer would have been the guy I would have stuck with. It's a close game. Again, you're in it. I thought Greer was doing really good things. Give him a chance to do something bad before you then give Treon his set of plays. But that's not the way that it went down, and I think that it hurt us. Right. Well, so this is the the really strange thing is we still put some points on the board. We still held them a lot. I mean, our score predictions, mine ended up being fairly close. I went very conservative and did 35-21. We're pretty close to that. You went a little higher. What was your prediction? Yeah, 41-13. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it feels like that's the way the game should have played out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. We, of course, we missed those field goals. I mean, not that he's going to hit everyone all season. But if you get one of those, you get one more score. I, I don't know. It was such a strange game. I didn't have a feel for it. Like, watching it, it's like, why are the things happening that are happening right now? Uh, it was tough to watch. Oh, let me ask you, were you... Do you share McElwain's sentence of were you embarrassed? Like, do you think it's an embarrassing display by the Gators? If I was a coach, if I was the coach of the Gators, I should say, having done some coaching myself, it's, yeah, I'd be really embarrassed. I mean, if my players committed 12 penalties, it was 12, right? 12 penalties, most of them were unforced error penalties, if you want to call it that, right? It's not a, it's not a penalty where you're, you're playing hard, it's a hustle penalty, it's really just something you're doing on your own. I'd be really embarrassed. I mean, you spend hundreds of hours preparing this team to go into this game and play the game the way you want them to play. And then they ultimately do something completely opposite of what you think to the point to where you end in a tirade on one of your players on the sideline because you're literally blowing your top at what's going on. And I I think it's maybe a tip of the hand of the fact that one, McIlwain is in a situation at Florida, unlike Colorado State, where he's got some players who who believe in their own press clippings. At Colorado State, having McIlwain coach you is probably, hey, this guy has coached a bunch of NFL guys. I'm going to listen to everything he says. And at Florida, it's different. 
it's different. These guys win one game by a lot, and they think they're all amazing, and then he all of a sudden has these guys just committing bonehead penalties. So really I would be penalties. embarrassed if I was him. For us, for you and me, are we embarrassed? I'm not embarrassed. I think, if anything, I always wait two games to judge a team because I think it's really important. I think we saw that in the whole landscape of college football this past weekend, that the second game is very, very different from the first game. And you have to look at both of them. It starts to give you an idea. Ultimately, I do, like you said, have the feeling that we would have crushed them had a few things been different strategically at a macro level. And therefore, I actually feel still positive coming into this week okay. because I think, like you said, that a few things go differently in that game and we really annihilate them. I think the problem I have now is what are we going to do coming into this next week? What decisions strategically are McIlwain going to make? And I know my first jumping off point for Will Muschamp was when he essentially anointed Driscoll over Brissett right away without what I thought was even a fair competition. And that obviously ended up the wrong way, in my opinion. And now we have McIlwain's first real strategic thing coming up. And it's going to be an interesting week. But before we address some of that, what are some things that went right in this game? There were some things that went right. What were some of those things? There were some good moments, right? We talked about this, and you said, overall, I do feel positive about the team. I thought, coming into the game, a big question we had was the defensive line. I thought they really stepped up, uh, especially in the run game. I mean, I, I was a little worried about ECU getting going on the ground, considering what we saw from New Mexico State, and they crushed them. I mean, they had negative rushing yards for the most part, and... So you saw them neutralize that team, make them one-dimensional. Now, I don't think they got the kind of pressure that we wanted to overall, but ECU is a super effective offensive team. Uh, so I thought that was a real highlight for the game. That was a real positive for me. What about you? What else went right for us? I thought the defensive tackles went right. I, I thought the defensive ends went wrong. I mean, I, I don't. Did they even play in the game? I mean, zero edge pressure. Really, if you looked at our pressure, it was straight up the middle. Which was great because I thought last game our D tackles were like not even there. And so I, I don't know what's going on with this team. It's sort of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, but incredible run stopping game. Bullard played um, great. Bullard, yeah, was fantastic. Joey Ivy obviously really mm -hmm. stepped up, had a great game. But I, where are our defensive ends? I mean, you had almost a zero stat line from all the guys that played end. And there wasn't a lot of pressure. And in fact, in the second half, we almost had no pressure. When we yeah. rushed just four people, he was standing back there. He had all day to hit those little slant routes whenever he wanted. And uh, I thought the defensive ends were, were curiously missing. But on defense, I thought really who, who did really well were the linebackers. I thought the linebackers, which we only have three at this university, one of whom got injured. We had two playing the game. I thought both of them did really well. And I thought Davis was, was fantastic. I mean, we're number 40 out there. First long-term action in a while due to an injury. And he, I thought he was absolutely he fantastic. And I, would, I don't know if I agree totally on the linebackers. I mean, Antonio Morrison just looks like a shell of himself. There are moments when he gets beat in run defense or takes a terrible ankle, excuse me, angle, and you know he. It's hard to say because I'm not watching him on every play, but there's moments where it looked like he was a little lost in space out there. Um, but you're right, Davis played great. Anzalone, I think, is going to have a great season if we can keep him healthy. Uh, looked good when he was in there. We'll have to see what's going on with him. Uh, and also, you know what. What else went right? Your your boys, the tight ends, <laughs> continue to show up, especially Goolsby. Great game. Big yardage again. Yeah, Goolsby. Goolsby, and you don't want to compare anyone to this person, but Goolsby reminds me of Aaron Hernandez. Uh, only playing, obviously. Hopefully none of the other extracurriculars that, that go on. We don't want to go there. But, you know, Goolsby is an athlete. He's getting open. 
he's he, he came out of week one where I'm sure ECU gave him some attention and said, hey, this guy is someone to watch, and uh, he, he's he's impressing me. He had a great game, you know, led the receiving core, which there weren't there weren't a whole lot of receptions to go around, but two two games in the bucket and 94 yards out of a tight end at the University of Florida is actually a pretty huge yeah, yardage total. Great if you go back and look, that's that's massive compared to what we've done in the past 15 years. That's a big, big day from a tight end at the University of Florida. So again, no one really with big numbers on the team other than Goolsby rushing or receiving. And I think that comes down to the QBs. So I want to dig in a little bit deeper here. I mean, when Treon was in there, basically it looked like they had him in there at the end of the game because they wanted to run the ball and protect the ball. Uh, so not a lot of passing yardage, not a lot of rushing numbers. Uh, so moving forward, I want to see if you still feel the same way about Greer that you felt last week. Do you still think that he can be a guy that can take us to the next level? Yeah, I do. I actually feel the exact same way. I mean, we talked a little bit about it last week. I wanted what we talked about was I wanted to see progression, and I did not see progression. I mean, let's let's be clear about that. There was absolutely regression with Will's game, but that was only in the third quarter. And for me, switching quarterbacks the way we're doing it generally does not work well. People have played two quarterbacks. Certainly we've done it with Chris Leak and Tim Tebow, but it was different, right? Tim comes in on short yardage and hammers it around, and Chris Leak's the passing guy. Spurrier tried it countless times with multiple guys, and it does not work. It just doesn't work. You can't switch quarterbacks in-game. You can't do it at South Carolina. You can't do it now at Florida. You can't do it anywhere. And I think you really crush those guys, especially if they're both so young. You know, we're seeing a second game the action in his whole career and I felt like he showed me all the things I wanted to see in the first quarter I mean literally I'm like this is great this guy's having a great progression from last week and then the third quarter was completely opposite of that I'm not giving him an excuse on that you still should play better but I think that really played into what went down now I think you got a situation where both quarterbacks put a game on film it's not great and you come into Kentucky on the road where you're thinking great now neither of these guys feels good about themselves and you've missed reps I, I'm not I'm not happy with it, but I still think Greer, long-term, he's the guy. In fact, his numbers are pretty good. I mean, he should have been picked off twice easily, but his numbers are solid. He's 10 of 17. If you, if you play him a whole game, 20 of 34, throws for 300 yards, throws three or four touchdowns. If you just double that line, that's a really good game. Right, I think. And, and I just think that he's still much, much better than Shreon, who is still late on throwing, doesn't want to throw, runs outside the tackles. He doesn't do the things you need out of a quarterback Aside from running, which I just think is such a limited thing to, to hit your wagon to a guy who just runs okay. I think that's the most disappointing thing to come out of this game is the fact that we don't have a quarterback moving forward. That, that needed to get settled, and it's not. And, I, gosh, I go back to that moment where Greer, they lift him, and you know what? It, it just kind of muddles everything up, and it's really unfortunate because you don't have a moment. There's going to be growing pains with both of these guys if Absolutely. you pick them. Greer's going to have – he's going to throw some picks. Like, it's going to happen, whether it's a crazy Alvin Bailey, like, not his fault, or he's going to throw it right at the safety one time. It's going to happen. you got to let him take those lumps and move forward, whether that's Treon or Greer. And unfortunately, we didn't have that settled now. And we're going to go to Kentucky on the road, and it's going to be, you know, another week of trying to figure this out. And it is, and I think it's the first, I'm going to say, strategic failure of, of McIlwain's tenure. Of course, we're not in practice. You know, I don't know what's going on every day. But viewing from afar, to me, I don't think it's a wise strategic move to continue to rotate quarterbacks, especially on the road, especially when they're both young. I think it's foolish, and I, I think we almost paid the price last week. I don't know what's going to happen this week, but I can tell you that I feel less good about it. Last night, I was hopeful that one of them would be named a starter 
Obviously, I think it's Will, but I think one should have been named a starter. I think we should roll the dice with somebody, give them a chance to play, and give them a chance to play themselves out of it. If someone puts a horrible three quarters of a game in and they're just terrible and you can see everything is flawed, then put the next guy in. But have a guy be the guy. You're my guy. You're my guy for the future unless something goes way wrong. And do it that way. And it concerns me for this game. I feel much less optimistic about it because I just don't know what to expect now. These two guys, I don't know what's in their head, but it can't be great. It can't be great. Agreed. All right, let's move on and talk a little bit, maybe have some fun on our end. Let's look at our predictions for last week. We did at the end of the podcast. Uh, you were pretty spot on. I was way off. Um, we made a few guesses about rushing and receiving leaders. I took Scarlett. You took Taylor. I took Callaway. You took Goolsby, right? Yeah, yeah. So big winner for you. Callaway, I don't think, even recorded a catch. I mean, Scarlett looked okay when he was in there. He did. He did. I ex- see, I expected the game to go the other way. Right. And there would be some garbage time rushing for him. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen. You were right on the money with your boy Tabor, too. Big interception return. That was huge. Uh, so And then uh, McAllister, no sacks. Or Cox, no, no sacks. So no we no show. Those. No show from them. Now we know to pick defensive tackles. And, <laughs> and obviously you had Hargraves as your corner, and he didn't play. And that's not really anything you could do there. But there was a surprise player, for sure, I think for both of us, of the game who really jumped out on the stat line. And that would have been Joey Ivey. Yeah, he looked great. I mean, like you said before, the defensive tackles looked excellent. Bullard, maybe the best player in the game yesterday in terms of the defense. And Ivy, yeah, jumped up. He's a guy who just seems like a try-hard guy. But maybe I need to reevaluate that. Like, he does have some talent there. He looked a little explosive, so kudos to Joey Ivy. And speaking of the defense, let's just spend a minute talking about maybe what what happened with the defense. Because we're supposed to be loaded in the secondary. We just got lit up. There's no better way to say it. You know, 360 some odd yards of passing or somewhere in that ballpark by a third string quarterback who was never supposed to see the field at ECU lit up basically with the same three formations. They killed us out of the trips right or trips left formation where they had the inside receiver run a drag. I mean, just the most basic play you could ever run. We could not stop it. We sat back and I know Jeff Collins does this. He's a limit the big play kind of guy. We sat back and just let them throw that pass the entire game to the point to where the last two drives were almost exclusively that play. And when they went four wide or they wound up going with a balanced formation, they struggled to move the ball. But every time in that trips, they really got us. And it's a little frustrating for me. I didn't see any creativity. I never saw a defensive end drop or a defensive tackle drop into a zone. I never saw anything to confuse the opposition. I don't know if, again, this is the preseason mentality, but I can tell you as we move forward, that if we're going to let every team just throw slants on us all day like that, they're going to do it. I mean, that's a basic completion for any quarterback to make. Yeah, we'll see that from Kentucky all day. Uh, yeah, I agree. I was perplexed by that. I don't know whether not having Vern and not having Keanu Neal really made them more cautious. I mean, there's a there's a lot of quality guys in the secondary. Now, it seems like Marcel Harris and maybe even Nick Washington are safeties who played most of this game were a little overmatched. May have been giving them too much credit. Um but I, I still want to reserve judgment on this group till we can see a lineup with our three best corners and our best two safeties and see if that allows Collins to feel more aggressive on the front end by sending some more blitzers and doing a few more things like that. And that's that's a good point to watch. But the safeties, and we talked about it in week one, we talked about it in week two, they continue to be a monumental disappointment for me. And they haven't been, I know we haven't had a healthy safety set yet. We haven't played both of our guys at the same time. But thus far... I don't know. I don't. I can't figure out what's going on. But I mean, these guys don't make tackles. They don't make plays. We spent a lot of that game in a nickel cover two, where we consistently 
consistently couldn't have a safety move to the obvious side of the field. I mean, it's very easy to cover two. The quarterback opens up, he looks to one side of the field. If a safety, you fly to that side of the field. And this guy's lobbing balls up top that we couldn't pick off. The safeties aren't even there. They're late, they're slow to react, and I know they're young, and like you said, that's that's a part of it. It definitely limits what you can do if you don't want to move a safety up. You don't want to put him into some of those throwing lanes. It has to get better, though. It's hurt us last year. It's got to get better this year. We have to start getting play out of our safeties, both tackling and in coverage. Otherwise, it's going to really inhibit what we're doing, especially if we're not getting any pass rush from our defensive ends. Agreed. We need to see some improved play there, and we'll see about that going forward. I want to jump in and talk about maybe the most controversial moment. You've alluded to it so far is the video of Coach McElwain really laying into Kelvin Taylor after the 15-yard unsportsmanlike penalty for the throat slash. And whether you agree well, that's a silly penalty or not, everyone knows it's a penalty. And McElwain lit him up. I mean, do you agree with that? McElwain has since said that you know he's not exactly proud of that moment. What were your thoughts on that moment? I think that McElwain says he's not proud of it now because it went viral and everyone caught on to it. <laughs> I think in the moment he felt like this is a team problem. And if you notice in the video, they, they huddled the team over there. He, he, from what I understand, he called a lot of the team around and then lit in to Kelvin Taylor. And I don't think this was done necessarily to, to feed McElwain's ego. I think it was done because, again, as a coach, as someone who's putting in a system, he spent his whole time building something, and he basically was preaching, we will not play this way. The team does it. Then in the fourth quarter, after we've already played this way, which you better believe the position coaches, every single time these guys are on the field, or off the field rather, are telling them, hey, let's stop making dumb mistakes. And then Kelvin goes out there and makes the dumbest mistake of all after a touchdown, which costs his team. And I think at that point in time, McElwain obviously decided, thought through it enough to huddle the team together, lay into this guy. Kelvin's the leader on the team. He's been around for a while. Um, and make an example out of a guy who I think he knew could handle it. I'm sure if he could do it again, he'd probably try to find a way to get outside of the way of the cameras. Um, but I, I think it's beneficial for the team to know that, hey, he's not going to tolerate this. Not from anyone. It's not happening. And the next person to do it, if anyone does it this year, will be a very bold person after that sort of tirade. Whereas maybe put your arm around him and talk to him quietly. That could also work. But I think that when you're coaching a football team of young guys who are very impressionable, it is important to let them know that, hey, what's going on right now? This is completely unacceptable. I agree. There's maybe a better place to do it. And I don't know that McElwain, he should have known that everything was caught on film. Maybe he wasn't thinking about that at the moment. Or maybe he didn't care and then just was willing to deal with the consequences. But that's the kind of thing that I'm okay with a coach being upset about. Because that's a, ultimately a selfish move where you know you celebrating in front of the fans is more important than what's happening with the team. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm okay with him being really upset about now you know if it's other things just guys not playing up to their potential or not, doesn't mean that every guy needs to get yelled at like that but i i'm okay because i i value that team first mentality and if McElwain's gonna say that then he's got to enforce that too whether that's his star running back or you know the fourth team linebacker or whatever so i'm okay with it i i don't necessarily think you always want to like respond that way but in that moment at in that game where the game was still very much in doubt it wasn't throat slash this is over i don't know i, I think whether McElwain really regrets it or not uh, i don't have a problem with it right and i think the intent is the key you know are we saying that he should have gone on a profanity laced tirade right next to the sideline no we probably shouldn't have done that but the intensity of the message he's conveying the intent of the message i think is on point 
And another message was sent at the end of the game, maybe a, a different one, but one that's been around in football for a long time, which is where you pick up the ball and you're running towards the end zone for a score. The stadium's going wild. You're going to win the game. And then uh, out jumps one of your own players to tackle you. Oh, gosh. Uh, so McAllister's running and he's being tackled. Is this a good play, a bad play? Like, is this stupid? I mean, what is this? Uh, I don't know whether to think this was great or terrible. I kind of go back and forth. It's mostly funny, I guess, because we won. Um, but... I mean, the general rule, if you're not aware, the reason that whole thing happened is if the game is going to be won by you kneeling on the ground, you do it. So whether that's an interception to steal the game or a fumble recovery, because the only bad thing that could change it is you getting hit and fumbled. Now, oh, I don't know with him tackling, though, because like, he could have run to the end zone. No one was going to touch him. But it was almost worse. Jared Davis tackling, what if he had fumbled then? That would have been maybe the worst of all scenarios um, so I don't know what to think. I mean, it's the right, McAllister should have laid down and he probably wasn't. So Jared made him do it, but I don't know. It's pretty funny either way, I guess. It is funny, especially since we've blocked our own guys and now we're tackling our own yes. guys. This is, this is different, but I think at the end of the day, McAllister hopefully learns that he should really just go down there. And I know that, uh, that Davis said that he, he tackled him in a bear hug to prevent him from fumbling. Yes. So he was thinking through this a lot. Um, so, you know, maybe if our guys could put this kind of focus into into not getting penalties this week, then we'll be in really good yeah. shape. McAllister, I'm not sure what's exactly in his head. I mean, he maybe the dumbest penalty of the game other than Kelvin's was him running to the punter. It wasn't even close to blocking it. Extends a drive. And then, I don't know. I don't know. It's got to be hard not to, if you see a, a free touchdown at the end of the game. Big celebration not to run for it, but the smart move is definitely in that moment to kneel down. Let's move now to our Gator Nation guest segment where we get a chance to hear from someone inside Gator Nation. Let's welcome our good friend, Peter Tebow, brother of Tim Tebow, UF graduate, friend of the program, to the program. Peter, welcome. I know you're out in Colorado. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, James. I uh, appreciate you including me on your massively successful podcast <laughs> thank you very much we're excited and i'm excited to hear your thoughts so far on not only the program but some other things as we chat with you and let's just jump right in what are your thoughts on coach McElwain? i mean everybody loved him and honestly he really took a program that has not typically been very good and made them pretty successful made them prolific on offense um, and so everything from I, that I've heard from uh, people who are familiar with the CSU program is, is just really good things. And then after watching kind of what happened on uh, on Saturday, man, I think I like the guy that much more. You know, I, I, he's uh, he's pretty intense, but he's intense for the right things, and I kind of like that. Speaking of that intensity and and seeing that and being someone who who had a brother that obviously played for the for the program, what is it like as a family member to watch? Maybe you're Kelvin Taylor right now. I know Fred Taylor commented today, but you see that happen. You consume it. It's not you personally, but obviously it's your it's your blood. It's your younger brother. Uh, in this case, Kelvin Taylor. It's your son. It's your family member. What's it yeah. like to take to sort of take that in as a family member and watch those things happen? Positive, negative. What's what are the feelings when that happens? Uh, well, it's kind of honestly when I'm watching the game and and every time they talk about Kelvin, they're like, you know, son of legendary you know, Gator running back Fred Taylor, and I kind of feel bad for the kid. I know what it's like to always be associated with somebody else. And so, you know, he just wants to come in and make a name for himself. It's not, uh, it wasn't his choosing that he has a very famous 
father. I mean, gosh, I remember what, 1996 and I was a kid and we went to fan day and I got Fred Taylor's autograph. And, uh, that was back when he was wearing the gold, which was pretty sweet. Um, and so I remember from that end and now I'm kind of like, okay, let the kid, you know, make up his own reputation. Um, (laughs) then, you know, I was thinking about it. He did the, he, he did the throat slashing gesture. And so, I remember back uh, when I was a freshman in high school, my older brother, Robbie, was a senior. Uh, we're playing at Trinity Christian in Jacksonville, and he made a, just an epic sack and a big game, and he did the throat flashing gesture, and he got a personal foul penalty. And, man, I remember the coaches just chewing him out, you know, and – but hey, one of the things I learned is that you don't ever do the throat slashing, slashing gesture, which I never did. Any of the probably what twelve and a half half sacks I had in high school in my prolific career. <laughs> um, and so, honestly, you just hope that uh, Calvin learns from it, that the other players learn from it, that he begin that uh, Coach McElwain begins to create a culture of good people playing well respecting each other, respecting the other team. And when you come out and make such a strong, uh, gosh, I didn't hear what he said, but you can read his lips on TV. And when when you make such a strong comment, you just hope it sticks. So that's kind of my comment about him getting uh, amped up over what I think is a good thing. Like I think he wants his kids to play the right way to respect the game, to not make stupid mistakes to not shoot themselves in the foot. And so I think that's getting kind of amped up over the right thing. And, and Peter as a state champion linebacker yourself and someone who's, who's won a title playing hey, for the, throwing that in there, man, you have to, you have to throw that in there in case you didn't know, you can still Google that. But Peter, Peter Tebow before, before Tim state champ at linebacker. Uh, and it's interesting to hear those comments because I know today there's been a little bit of, of discussion on whether or not that was a good move, whether the team would handle that correctly, whether Kelvin and the players would feel like that was some sort of slight. But coming from your mm-hmm. perspective, someone who's played and played well, it's funny that you had a, a like story, and the lesson that you took was exactly what I think McElwain is saying the lesson is, is we're not going to play like this as a team. This is not something we're going to tolerate. And yeah. um, that's that's obviously well, right. And, and so the last few years, honestly, we had a coach who made quite a few tirades. And... I didn't love them. I didn't love them because it, it it looked like they were tirades for whether it was poor performance or making a mistake here and there or, or whatnot. And I mean, sometimes you make a mistake. Sometimes you drop a pass and not every player responds to that kind of criti- criticism. Well, um, but when you, when you do something kind of boneheaded, well, I think there's a justified, um, response to that. Do I think that's the right response for every mishap? Like, no. And every kid doesn't need to be treated the same, you know, way either. Some kids respond a lot better with, and I don't know if you heard me calling them kids. That's pretty ridiculous. Huh? <laughs> means I'm getting older, James. We are getting older. Um, <laughs> some kids respond better to with a pat on the back. Some respond better with, you know, a kick and kick on the butt. And so, um, but for, that instance, yeah, he's setting the tone. Like we're we're not going to hurt ourselves by selfish play. Uh, we're going to respect the game. We're going to respect the rules. And and uh, honestly, we we had a little trouble with our our penalties on Saturday. But you know, I think with with 
setting a culture of doing things the right way, I think that's a good thing. And and speaking of setting a culture, something that we're going to talk a lot about and have already talked about on the podcast today is the quarterback situation. Do you have a do you yeah. have a favorite between Will and Treon? Undecided, and and if you have a favorite, what do you, what do you think about the fact that that as of today we're still splitting time between the quarterbacks? <laughs> We've been around a few a few situations where we split time at quarterback in Gainesville. I, I know that's for sure. <laughs> um, and it's so funny because last year, man, watching from afar, Treon just brought a spark. I mean, I loved watching him play. He's not polished, he's not perfect, but he just brought a spark that really gave our team the life we needed. And we're kind of wondering this year whether um, whether that'll last. Uh, I know that Will uh, just, I don't know, Will kind of just has the look of someone who um, could be the guy. I think he's got some of the intangibles. He's uh, seems to have a good arm. Uh, I'm rooting for the kid. I, I don't know. Also, I'm, I think I'm kind of split too. Uh, part of me just loves what Treon came in and tried to do last year, and I think it'd be great if he was able to. Um, right now, it kind of feels like he's the underdog, and uh, I always love to pull for a good underdog story. <laughs> so, if you were the coach and we're playing Kentucky this week, you're McElwain. Are you naming a starter? Are you splitting time? I think you still have to split time. I think Will played better last week um, and looks a little more polished right now. Uh, but you do want to – I mean, we're so early into this thing uh, where you obviously don't want to put your team in a tough spot. And I know a lot of the quarterback play is rhythm and the feel of the game and, and um, you know, getting – a connection with your receivers and the line and the backs. Uh, so you want to continue to build that, but I think we're early enough where you can still split time. All right. Well then that is, that is an interesting take. I, I feel now obviously that I'd love to have a starting quarterback named um, regardless, because I think that you, you, these guys kind of suffered last week, but it's going to be interesting to mm-hmm. shake out this weekend. They're going to get playing time. We're on the road. We're against a Kentucky team. That's obviously pretty good. Uh, we shall see. Speaking of interesting quarterback situations, it's not possible to have you on the show without getting at least some thoughts on uh, your younger brother, little Timmy, as we'll call him, little, 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 little small Timmy, your younger brother. What, what do you think it is maybe that hasn't allowed him? And he's had numerical success in the NFL by a lot of metrics. So hasn't allowed him to be able to stick. And and there might not even be an answer because honestly, I don't think any of us know for sure. But maybe broadly, what are what are some of the thoughts you might have on that situation? Yeah, that's tough. I mean, I, I know that I'm I'm sure proud of him for for giving it a shot. I mean, I I think after uh, the first uh, getting cut, I probably would have you know called it a day, hung up my cleats, you know, invested the rest into my. Uh, broadcasting career but he's he's definitely not one to back down from a challenge and definitely not one to quit and he's kept pressing even when he didn't get a shot last year and uh i mean the dude just worked his butt off to try to get a chance this year and you know it didn't pan out and man the nfl is a fickle business and it's just that i mean it's a business and as much as we'd like to say that you you know it's a the nfl is all about trying to make good storylines it's not i mean it's it's 
it's a big business. And I don't know if you've seen all those like FanDuel commercials and all the commercials leading up. Man, everyone is trying to capitalize on the popularity and the success of the NFL because it's just that it's a business. Uh, so after, you know, after Denver, uh, I don't know, man. I just think uh, people have opinions that are formed in their head of what he is or what he isn't. And those opinions are deep seated. And uh, I mean, you wish, I mean, I, I just personally, as just, as a fan, I look there, I look out across NFL rosters and see some of the guys who are on these rosters and think, man, like, I think he's better than those, those guys. And I do. That's my honest belief. I think he's better than a lot of those, a lot of those guys on different NFL rosters, but I'm not a GM, you know, it's not my job on the line. Uh, and so it's hard to say what has kept him from, you know, making, making another splash. Uh, but I'll tell you this, uh, there's a lot of people who I meet in Denver, whether it's for work or church or business or whatever, who, who sure miss him out here. And he made quite an impression when he was here and, Heck, if he hadn't gotten drafted by the Broncos, man, I, I wouldn't have come out here for grad school and met my wife and started a life out here. So I'm, I'm pretty grateful to Josh McDaniels uh, for probably one thing, um, and that is drafting him because uh, it, it sure did change my life. So it's amazing the ripple of uh, effects. But, man, I don't know if I have a good question for you. No, that's that's a great answer. I think that's really insightful, and I think it's neat, like you said. No matter where Tim goes, he makes a big impression, and and that's that's one of the theories, I guess, as a last comment. Is there any thought in your mind that because he's so popular, that if he gets on a team and he's he's a backup, that the fans will just continue to want him to be in? They buy his jersey, they talk about him to the point to where coaches who clearly tend to lead the ego discussion, and I think your brother obviously doesn't really have much of an ego, which makes it the interesting thing. Maybe can't tolerate the fact that there's a backup quarterback that is is bigger than themselves, and they sort of want this guy to play. Is there any thought that people are worried about his popularity, they can't handle it, or do you think that's just sort of an overhyped theory? Uh, I don't think that's too much of an overhyped theory. I mean, the fans are crazy. They're, they're crazy both in a good way, and his detractors are, you know, crazy on the opposite end. There's a People have opinion have an opinion of him, and it is a strong one, uh, generally. And so, you know, if I was a coach, uh, you know that that is something you have to to take into effect. I mean, there, there have been other guys who have had one so one type of stigma on them because of various things, and it makes it a challenge. That you know, those are all the that's what all the storylines are written about. Um, and some some people probably find the noise to be too loud, I guess. Um, and it, it it keeps them from if there were no avid or rabid fans, um, and it was all measurables and all game film and intangibles, and those are the only things we're looking at. I, it may be a different story, but. Uh, I don't know. That's that's hard to say. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think we'll never know. You know, there's been good articles written on it. It's certainly a fascinating topic. It just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me personally, regardless of whether or not, um, you know, I'm, my friendship with you and, and my fandom. Just looking at it objectively, I've I've never been able to figure it out. It's it's pretty baffling. Uh, and then lastly, here a fun question I like to ask each time, and I know it's been a little bit since you've been in Gainesville. 
But what is your favorite restaurant in the Ville? Oh, gosh. Favorite restaurant in the Ville. Back when I was living in the Ville, my um, budget didn't allow for too extravagant uh, dining situations. Um, not, not to say that it, it allows for much more extra, extravagant <laughs> ones now. <laughs> um, gosh, what was that place? Um where they carved the tree in front of that restaurant. What was the name of that restaurant? Do you remember? Where they carved the tree. Remember they carved it? It was Trebo. Remember they oh, carved oh, that Bally, tree? Oh, Bally, <laughs> Ballyhoos. Ballyhoos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I um, knew the uh, – that's kind of a ridiculous thing. But I, I knew the, the owner of Ballyhoos, and every time we'd go in there, man, he would make up this grouper filet. It was about like an inch thick, and one of the best – pieces of fish that I've ever eaten. And so moving out here to the middle of landlocked uh, Colorado, I, I'm skeptical of every fish that um, is on any um, menu at a restaurant. Cause I mean, man, there they catch it right off the coast. They bring it in, they cut it up, they serve it to you. And here you just kind of wonder where is that coming from? Uh, but yeah, Ballyhoos, man, give a shout out to Ballyhoos. Ballyhoos is is still here and doing well, and I think I think that Tim Trebo is is still out there. I drive past it every day. I should pay more That's attention. Ridiculous. But yeah, <laughs> it is, it is. Well, Peter, thanks so much for being on the show. We enjoyed chatting with you. Um, I don't know if you're still on the Twitter sphere, but if you want, you can share your Twitter handle in case people want to catch up on what's going on with you out there in Colorado. I, I've quit tweeting. Uh, I think I got myself into too much trouble on Twitter uh, saying things that everybody thought, but, you know, you're just not supposed to say on Twitter publicly, so I'm not on there too much anymore. <laughs> well, Peter Tebow, then, is is out there doing doing the Lord's work in Colorado. If you want to find him, apparently you cannot. <laughs> Peter, thanks. Off the grid. Yeah, thanks so much for being on the show again. It's wonderful chatting with you. Look forward to seeing you in person soon. Absolutely. Good luck to you guys, and uh, good luck to your your amazing, um, world-renowned podcast. Really good to hear from Peter there. James, let's move our attention to Kentucky this week. What needs to happen for us to win this game? Our QBs need to play well, and really it's still frustrating. It's very frustrating to me that it's not one quarterback. But they both have to play well. If they're both going to play, and that's the world that we live in, they're both going to have to play well. That's just the bottom line. I don't know if we're still evaluating if this is a ploy. I've heard that some people think this is a ploy to where he's going to just really start one and play one, but he wants Kentucky to prepare for both, which maybe. I hope I hope that's the case. But that's the main that's the main thing. There's several other things that have to happen. But that one issue, that's the main thing I'm looking for. Agreed. This is a team that needs to play with a lot more poise and discipline. Still a young team. The penalties need to go back way down. And the turnovers can't have like us shooting ourselves in the foot. And then Austin Harden needs to at least be competent on field goals because uh, he's going to have to make a couple, I think. Especially on the road. Field goals on the road in the SEC are big time. A lot of these guys, it's their first road trip game. Uh, other position groups that matter are defensive ends. We need to get pressure and safeties. I'm just going to keep saying it until something gets better. But that that's what I'm looking for. I feel confident in running back. We know our O-line is limited. It's going to do what it does. We've seen decent play out of the receivers. We've seen great play out of the tight ends. So really, to me, you got to look at the question marks. Quarterback, safeties, and defensive ends. This will be a really interesting test. This young team going on the road for the first time, and this Kentucky team and this crowd is going to be amped. 28-year streak, 
They got maybe they felt like they got jobbed last year in the game, and they're going to be so motivated. I feel like it's going to be a really hostile environment. I'm really interested to see how they respond. Me too. 28 years is a long time, and you better believe that they are they are drinking their own Kool Aid right now. This is their moment. They're this is hyped. Their time. We're wounded. We're weak. Come and get us. We've consistently beaten them when that's been the storyline. And we are, I think, better at most positions still than they are if you look at just talent on paper. So we should control our own destiny in a sense, but a lot of that's going to come down to how clean we execute what we're doing. They're coming in riding high, beat South Carolina the previous week. First time they've won on the road in a long time. So I think they're going to be confident. Will, will our guys be confident in their play? Can they execute? It's going to be fun to see it. Um Give me a score here. Give me a prediction. Let's put put it on film here. Let's hear it. What do you think? As you're saying that, I'm like, I'm exhaling and shaking my head because I, I don't even know what to think. And normally I have a good feel about this. But if both quarterbacks play and they do the same preseason rotation that we played last time, I'm going to say that we score at least 17 points less than we would. So I think that puts us somewhere in the mid-20s to low-30s. Kentucky's defense is not particularly gifted. We should be able to score on them regardless. So... I would, again, think we'd score 40 on them if we were playing one quarterback, especially if it was Will for an entire game. I'm going to drop that down to mid-20s, and I'm going to say Kentucky's going to probably score on us some. Uh, it's a home game. It tends to happen. I think they might get somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 to 17. So I'm going to go with the score of us winning 24 to 17, which is just so much closer than I feel like wow. it really should be. So much closer. Like I just don't. I don't know what to think anymore. McElwain's got my head spinning. I'm not happy with the strategy that's going on, and I need something to believe in. And I don't know right now. So my score is indicative of that. What about you? That's kind of where I'm feeling too, and it feels. I don't know why it felt shocking to hear you say it. I'm gonna guess 27, 23. Gators pull it out barely, and I think it's gonna be again a game where we don't execute the way I want us to, but in the end have enough talent to pull it out. And, and just just digesting what we're saying right now in the moment, it's just hard for me to believe. If we win the game by the score we're talking about, I can tell you that on next week's podcast, I'll be unhappy again. Because this is no disrespect to Kentucky, but they're not there yet. South Carolina looks to, to, to have maybe one of the worst teams they've had under Steve Spurrier. They struggled against Louisiana Lafayette in week one, fiercely at home, Kentucky did. 33 points they gave up. Uh I, this is just a game that we should win by by 14 points or more. We should, and I, I just don't know anymore. I still feel positive about the overall direction, but I think McIlwain has gotten really cute, and now I just don't know what to think, and I've got to see it. This will be a data point, I think, that will bring a lot of clarity to the rest of this season. I know next week we're going to talk about what do we think is going to happen for the rest of the season. We're going to revisit some of our picks from the beginning of the year, and I think we're going to know a lot after this week. In fact, I think we'll know almost everything we need to know to make reliable predictions on what's going to happen in the future whereas this week we just we just cannot have a clue yeah it's still very much up in the air we don't have any idea how this team's going to respond on the road i think that's what's going to keep it close that the atmosphere there and how kentucky's just going to be so on it to win this game that we're gonna have to a real dogfight on our hands i agree i'm hoping that they'll pull it out i agree and give me give me a player that you think an impact player just one offensive defense that's going to have to really have a great game to to hold us together. I think it's going to have to go back to my guy at the beginning, Brandon Powell. He's got to make plays. When he gets the ball in his hands, things happen. We saw that against New Mexico State. Didn't really see it a ton against ECU. He's a guy you get him in space. Things happen. He makes people miss. 
he can get in the end zone. If he can do that, I think it's going to move us way ahead in the game. I would love to see that, especially since he just was, for some reason this past week, unable to really do a whole lot. Not his own doing. But I think that this is the week that Vernon Hargraves needs to step into a leadership role. This team is hungry for anyone on the field to become a leader. When your quarterbacks aren't the leader, somebody else has to be that. Who is it? Can we name one? You know, Vernon's kind of a quiet guy. This is the week where if he's going to be a quiet guy, he's going to have to put something out there to inspire and rally this team on the road. Winning on the road has so much to do with your leadership. What are the veteran guys doing to encourage the young guys to keep the team together? We don't have it. It's why it's a big test. I want to see him do something if he plays, and I'm hoping he's playing. That's going to be a big key. But do something to rally the team around him. I've got this. We're going to win. Here's how it's done. Get on my back sort of situation. So here's the point in the podcast. We get to hear from the opposition, a viewpoint from the opposing team. I want to hear what these guys got to say. They're excited this week. Let's get right to it. Let's welcome to the program Tony Neely. He's the Assistant Athletic Director for Media Relations for the University of Kentucky. Tony, welcome to the show. Uh, Glad to be on, James. Glad to be on, Alan. And uh, it's a good opportunity to talk with the fans down in Florida and, of course, I guess with the uh, podcast uh, opportunity folks uh, from all over the nation. (laughs) That's right. And folks all over the nation, at least down here in Florida and, and probably elsewhere, seem to think that Kentucky this year is maybe better and or different than they've been in the past. Now, I know you've had some good programs in your in your 21 years that you've been there. Does this feel different than some of those before? Does it does it feel as different as it does to us here in Florida? Well, it it you can feel the program building. Uh, you know, you go back a few years ago when Rich Brooks was our head coach. Uh, he went to uh, uh, five straight bowl games from 2006 to 2010. We really had it going uh, going pretty well. We went in seven, eight games a year and, and going to bowl games. Uh, and then we had a little bit of a lull. Uh, and, uh, you know, Coach uh, Mark Stoops came in, uh, defense coordinator at, at Florida State, and he inherited a program that had gone 2-10. And, 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 and frankly, he will, he will tell you our – you know, our overall talent level wasn't what we needed to, to win in the Southeastern Conference. I mean, that was, that was just uh, pretty evident. So uh, he's had to build for the last two years, and you can see the team getting better, and we are making progress. The program's getting better. Uh, you know, we still got a good ways to go, a lot of work to do, and a lot of improvement to make, uh, uh, you know, as we seek to contend in the SEC. But there's no question the program's getting better, and then we're heading the right direction. This weekend's game – would it be right to say that this is a, a huge game from a fan excitement point for the Kentucky fans, or is this just another brick in the in the process of rebuilding and come you know getting over the hump? Well, I think it's a huge game for our fans, and 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 a couple of reasons. Obviously, they're excited about the the good start. Uh, I went to South Carolina was the first uh, SEC road win uh, in six years since two thousand and nine. So. Uh, that's got our fans excited. Uh, in fact, today we just sold out our last individual tickets uh, for this game, so uh, we anticipate a full house uh, at the stadium on Saturday night. Uh, and also, and you know, you can't hide the fact that uh, uh, you know Florida's beat us 28 years in a row, and obviously that sticks in the craw of our fans. And so, uh, you know, it's a big game for the fans. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, the players and coaches uh, uh, want to win, but you know, the fans would like to get that streak uh, broken. So. Uh, you know, so I think it's a very big game for our fans. Yeah, so with this 28-year streak, uh, do you feel like the players and the coaches are confident coming to this game, or are they thinking that this is going to be the year that it ends? 
Well, the the players and coaches really, I don't, they don't think about it like you know fans do and media do that kind of thing. Because you know the fans and media are there year after year after year. Uh, you know this current group of coaches has been here two years. Uh, the you know obviously the players, nobody's been here more than three or four years. Uh, so they haven't been through you know 28 years. Uh, uh, and so I don't think players and coaches really think a whole lot about that. Uh, I really don't. Coach uh, Stoops was talking about the day. Uh, he said, I don't even know if I'm going to mention it to our team. I don't, you know, they know it's there, but, you know, we've just been here two years. And so what we're just trying to concentrate on is, you know, doing the things that we've got to do to prepare to give ourselves a chance to win. You know, we've got to have a good week of practice. We've got to be very focused. We've got to get ready for the things that, that Florida does. We've got to, uh, you know, sharpen the things that we do. You know, that those are the things that would give us a chance to win uh, on Saturday. And, you know, just thinking about some kind of streak really doesn't help you get better uh, it didn't help you prepare to win. So we're really not thinking about it a whole lot. So I, I think it's something that, that fans and media and so forth can concentrate on more than the actual players and coaches themselves. So when Florida fans turn on the game on Saturday, what do they ex- should they expect to see out of Kentucky on offense and defense? What are they really trying to do schematically and just big picture overall? Right, the, the Kentucky offense uh, – uh, is what it's kind of called the air raid offense because our, our new offensive coordinator Shannon Dawson comes from the air raid coaching tree. A uh, longtime Gator fans will remember Hal Mummy, who was the Kentucky head coach in the late '90s, and he used to throw the ball all over the yard. It was a uh, very heavily passing-oriented offense, um, and uh, uh, Coach Dawson, Shannon Dawson, our new offensive coordinator, comes from that uh, coaching tree. Ironically, as did Neil Brown, our previous offensive coordinator, Coach Brown. Uh, just got the head coaching job at Troy University, so uh, congratulations, to Coach Brown, moving up uh, to a head coaching position in the Division One ranks. And uh, Mark Stoops went out and got Shannon Dawson, the offensive coordinator at West Virginia, to be our new OC. Uh, and what you see out of this, though, that Coach Dawson's version of the air raid has evolved over the years. It's not just passing all the time uh, like Coach Mummy's was. It's a real split between uh, between running pass. Like you look at our statistics, the first two games. Uh, we have 64 rushing attempts, 63 passing attempts. Uh, one thing you will see in the passing game that's different uh, in this version of the air raid is Coach Dawson believes in throwing the ball vertically. Uh, we've thrown a lot of deep balls uh, the first couple of games, and so I expect that there will be at least uh, a few long tries for Kentucky in the game uh, on Saturday. Of course, that's going to be uh, easier said than done. Uh, when you got Vernon Hargreaves back there, one of the, the probably the best cornerback in the nation. You know, guys like uh, Brian Poole has been there forever, a uh, real quality defensive back. So uh, it would be really difficult for U.K. to throw long uh, on Florida. But uh, I'll be very surprised at the same time if, if we don't take a shot at it a couple times. Coach uh, uh, like Dawson believes in, in throwing the ball long, and so we'll probably hoist it long a couple of times uh, during the contest. Uh, defensively, uh, evolved a little bit. Uh, uh, folks who keep up with it, Coach Stoops came in here a couple of years ago. He's a defensive-oriented coach and uh, came in as a 4-3 man uh, on his style. But over the last couple of years, he's, he's come to the uh, the point where his evolution as a defensive coach has moved into more of a 3-4 look. So uh, you'll see three down linemen. Uh, but you'll also see the two outside linebackers a lot of times line up on the ends, almost like stand-up ends. So there's sometimes our defense looks like a 5-2 with a couple of stand-up ends on the outside. So, uh, and, of course, you know, it can vary. We can put in a, a nickel or a dime package with an extra defensive back or two extra defensive backs if 
if uh, Florida goes completely wide receiver and, and has an empty backfield. So, uh, you know, you have to kind of adjust to, to what the opponent does. Uh, so you'll see a lot of different looks. That's one thing Coach Stoops does believe in is, is to vary the thing up and, and not give the, the same look all the time. So the base defense is 3-4, uh, with some stand-up ends, and, of course, obviously we can adjust depending on the, the down and distance and, and, you know, the time and score and so forth. And if you had to name one impact player on offense and one on defense, who would they be? Well, uh, on offense, I'd uh, probably pick our, our running backs, uh, Stanley Boone Williams. Uh, the sophomore did a great job last year, uh, kind of worked into the rotation as the season went along, ended up being our leading rusher last year, uh, averaged, uh, ran for 486 yards last year, which is not a huge number, but he averaged 6.6 per attempt, uh, which is a really, really good number uh, so far through two games this year. And, and you know, you know, I'm guessing probably hadn't played the level of defense that Florida's going to show us on Saturday. We've played Louisiana Lafayette and then and then South Carolina. Uh, it's obviously a good SEC team, but uh, it's probably going to be our toughest test uh, of the season so far. But that, that being said, uh, Boone's averaging 10.1 yards per carry uh, through the first two games, uh, 24 carries for 242 yards. Uh, so he is he is a legitimate threat to go the distance uh, anytime he has his hands on the ball. He had uh, uh, three touchdown runs over 50 yards last year. Uh, was one of only 10 players in the nation who can make that claim. And uh, in fact, our very first offensive play of the season uh, two weeks ago against uh, Louisiana, he he took a handoff up the middle and zipped 75 yards for a touchdown. So this is a guy who can uh, who can take us the distance, and when he gets in the open field, he's very very difficult to catch. Uh, that would be our, our offensive player uh, who I would uh, point out as, as uh, being a headliner uh, on defense. Uh, I'd probably say, you know, a guy who's really grown is, is our middle linebacker, Josh Forrest. He was uh, fourth in the SEC in tackles last year, made 110 tackles, uh, but has also started to mature into a big play performer as well. Uh, he leads us with 22 tackles through the first two games. Uh, he's got a tackle for loss, but the thing that he's really helped us with uh, is he's really good in pass defense. He's like having another defensive back in the game at middle linebacker, and you think, gosh, how can that be? But this was a guy who was a wide receiver in high school. Uh, actually was a basketball star. Uh, Josh was a basketball star, wanted to play college basketball. Uh, but uh, he was concerned his body just wasn't quite tall enough. He was about 6'3 or 6'4, uh, so he started playing uh, football his last two years of, uh, of high school and was a great wide receiver, and we, we signed him as a wide receiver coming out of high school, believe it or not. Uh, but then we, we switched him over. He started filling into his body. Uh, he's up now to about uh, – uh, he's six forward, about 250 pounds. Uh, we switched him over to uh, defense as, as an outside linebacker, and then uh, a year ago moved him to the inside linebacker. Boy, has really blossomed. Uh, and, and so, like I said, he's our leading tackle with 22 stops. Getting back to the pass defense that aspect of it, um, you know, two games, he's leading the Southeastern Conference in passes defended. He's broken up four passes uh, and also had a game-clinching interception uh, against uh, Louisiana the first week of the season on the final play of the game when they were trying to throw to the end zone to, uh, to tie the ball game. So uh, I'd say Josh Forrest has been our impact player on defense, a uh, good tackler, and uh, has just been tremendous uh, in pass defense. And Tony, we thought we'd tap into a little bit of your Lexington knowledge here. And as Florida fans are on the road this weekend, can you give us one or two restaurants you would recommend them checking out? Uh, sure. There's uh, 
a lot of good restaurants in the uh, Lexington area. Uh, one just came from, in fact, a few minutes ago, one called, uh, and there's some locations in the city, uh, Malone's. Uh, I would recommend go uh, checking out Malone's. There's, uh, like I said, three or four locations around the city. Very good, uh, uh, just good American fare. They have uh, steaks, sandwiches, uh, all sorts of salads, all sorts of uh, uh, good dishes. Uh, there's another uh, uh, place, it's a local place, uh, like Malone's, it's called Ramsey's. Uh, Ramsey's is a, uh, again, a locally owned diner. Uh, they've expanded to about three or four locations, again, scattered around the city, and it's all home-cooked. They uh, get as many home-cooked uh, uh, ingredients, vegetables, and so forth as they can, uh, and it's all home-cooked on-site. They don't uh, uh, bring anything frozen or anything like that. Everything's home-cooked, uh, and, and so... Uh, you can get this in a just original uh, original place. Uh, they also have great pies there. Uh, there's a pie shop called Missy's that is hooked on to every Ramsey's. And so uh, when you when you go into Ramsey's, don't forget the pie. You know you've got to you got to have a slice of pie. And there's all kinds of varieties. So those are a couple of really good places to eat. I'd recommend for uh, Florida fans to come in. It's supposed to have really nice weather this weekend uh, with um, uh, lows in the low 80s and then in the 70s in the evening. So Night game Saturday night should be a very pleasant evening for college football. Tony, thank you so much for being with us on the show. It's Tony Neely, the Assistant Athletic Director of Media Relations at the University of Kentucky. Good luck to the Wildcats this weekend. And, of course, Alan and I both hope the streak continues. And we know we know you feel opposite. But thanks, thanks so much again for being with us. Sure. Glad to be on and uh, appreciate you having me on. And uh, good luck with your show. As always, I really enjoyed that segment there with, with Tony. That's one of my favorite segments each week is talking to the opposition. I feel like it really gives me a good knowledge of what's going on. Love on a, hearing on from them. Yeah, on a higher level than just reading articles. So always fantastic. Let's play another game this week. Last week we picked you know, a four-pack or five-pack of individual players. This week, let's have a little two-pack. And this two-pack is going to be first, total team offense, how many yards does each team get? And second, how many turnovers are there? We'll go to start with you. I'll say for Florida... It's a good day, but not a great day. And I'll go 375 total yards. And for Kentucky, I'm going to go 250. How many turnovers do you have? I'll say two for them, one for us. I like that. It's a pretty clean game. I'm going to say for us, yardage-wise, that we need to hit above 400. Uh, I'm going to say 415 is what we need. And I'm going to say that Kentucky... I like your 250, but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go 275. I'm still concerned about a few things on defense. We'll go 275. And which, turnovers, which seems high. Turnover wise, I'm gonna say two for Kentucky and two from us. I think it's gonna be equal, and that would go to my game prediction of 24-17 and just wondering what's going on with the program. <laughs> and with that, we come to the end of episode three. Can you believe we've already done three episodes? Not really, but it's been great. Love it. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, find us on iTunes, subscribe please, uh, and tell your friends if you like it. And we love that you guys listen and are enjoying it. Um, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Drop us a like on Facebook, the Gator Nation Football Podcast, just like Alan said. Review us, rate us, share it with your friends. We certainly enjoy hearing your feedback each week. We love that you guys love the program. We love doing it. And we'll see you next week, hopefully after a Kentucky loss. This is a message from the emergency stuffed crust warning system. Cheese!
Little Caesars Extra Most Bestest Pizza now has three feet of cheese stuffed in the crust for just nine bucks. I repeat, it has three feet of cheese stuffed in the crust. Cheese! That concludes the message from the emergency stuffed crust warning system. Get a large Little Caesars Extra Most Bestest Pepperoni Stuffed Crust Pizza for $9. Top four national pizza chains. Extra Most Bestest Pizza versus large round one topping pepperoni pizza. Everyday standard menu prices. Three feet of cheese before cooking at participating locations plus tax. Pizza, pizza. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.